Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. When did UFO research actually begin? What were some of the strangest cases? And what were the conclusions? Greetings and welcome to the 854th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and those lofty questions came from my co-host, partner in Paranormal Adventures, and dad, Paul. And today we bring you a new guest with an unusual angle on a familiar subject. We welcome your calls today. It's uh, 401-766-1240. That is from anywhere. Or you can email paul at com or contact us via uh, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram for those who are not so vocally inclined. And I've known about him for many, many years, but this is the first time uh, he's been on the show. We're very glad to have him. Nigel Watson has researched and investigated many historical and contemporary reports of UFO sightings and has co-authored several articles about phantom airships seen over Britain in 1909 and 1913. A wider survey of these reports is contained in, in his ebook titled The Origin of UFOs, Phantom Airships, 1807 to 1917. Nigel also is the author of Portraits of Alien Encounters, 1990, Supernatural Spielberg with Darren Slade in 1992, uh, and was editor, writer of The Scare Ship Mystery, A Survey of Phantom Airship Scares, 1909 and 1918, published in 2000. In addition, he has written for numerous books, publications, and websites, including How It Works, All About Space, All About History, 40 and Times, Strange Magazine, and many more. Nigel holds degrees in psychology and film and literature. He lives in Plymouth, Devon, in England. He can be contacted at nigelwatson at gmail.com, and he is prominent on Facebook. So, Nigel Watson, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Hello. Good to be here. Oh, it's great to have you with us. Good so, to hear that Devon accent. We have a lot of family in Devon. Well, um, I've got more of an up north accent. I sort of drifted southwards from uh, Scunthorpe to London, and then I ended up in Plymouth. So, oh my goodness, I wonder <laughs> we can understand you at all. <laughs> so take it away, take us away, Ben. Alrighty, so let's let's just jump right into it. I, I suppose. So what was the earliest UFO case uh, you know of where an attempt was made at an investigation and what were the conclusions? All right. Well, there's quite a few contenders for that, but um, for an official investigation, I'd look at the First World War where um, Britain had quite a few sightings of lights in the sky and people thinking... Thinking, thinking that Germans and spies in Britain were, and were signaling to their airships at sensitive locations. And what happened was the, um, the Ministry of Defence of, um, had a, a, a department, a Ministry of Intelligence, and um, they decided they should um, investigate any interesting cases of anything seen in the sky in case it is a German um, German uh, spy activity and what happened was they published a report on how to investigate what we call UFO sightings now and it looks at how you should take information from witnesses uh, what information were needed that was essential to eliminate things like Venus and meteors and kites and balloons and things like that. So in a way, 
this is almost like a, a predecessor of Project Blue Book procedures, and um, it's quite an interesting document actually. Um, but uh, shows you that even in those days, there were plenty of other things going on in the sky that could be, you know, explained as something mundane. Um, because it was a bit of a curse to the services to keep getting reports from um, local civilians and police forces about, uh, you know, a, an airship constantly flying over dockyards or military establishments, and then they have to find out that it's really just, you know, what we used to call war nerves, and that, you know, people were highly sensitive to anything weird going on. So, although, uh, strictly speaking, I suppose it's not really UFOs in the sense that we look at them now, um, it was still dealing with um, things seen in the sky and related to that particular situation. So there were quite interesting reports of seeing um, German motor vehicles driving down country lanes, shining lights up at airships and guiding them to targets. And um, also people reported seeing lights on hilltops. And in Scotland, um, there were quite a few uh, rumours that there was an airship base operated by the Germans. And there was something like a £200 reward for anyone who could supply information to track down um, their base. And also, you know, we were looking out for anyone who bought a lot of gasoline or, um, you know, was sus suspicious in the area. And also in the Lake District, we sent out Boy Scouts and people to search for any uh, German aviators. And we even sent a British pilot... Uh, up north to have a look for any, um, you know, um, German air, air, air bases. But um, because they, you know, aircraft were quite unusual in them days, sending the pilot up only sent uh, more people to report strange things in the sky when it was really their own aircraft. So perhaps that just confused things as well. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it wasn't that great. Um, but, but, you know, we're obviously um, sightings way before the First World War. You know, the great um, United States uh, airship scare of 1896 to 97. But there weren't any official investigations. There tended to be one-off newspaper reports and stories. So, um, and also people thought it was some secret inventor. So at any time, people expected a big revelation that the person would land in public and make a big press statement uh, which never happened quite a few people did come forward to say they had invented it but they never come up with any uh, evidence and so mainly it was just sort of one-off newspaper stories and there wasn't really any reason to investigate uh, you know what was going on behind it and it was, you know, with the First World War, there obviously was a reason to investigate, uh, you know, what was going on in our skies. Um, and also it did, with the British cases, there were a few interesting incidents where uh, a pilot uh, did see an unusual object or light moving in the sky, and he actually took a revolver 
and uh, shot at it. So that's probably one of the earliest cases where you know somebody actually took a shot at a UFO because uh, there was no um, determination of uh, uh, of it being a, a, a real German airship in that particular area. And normally, the activity of any invading German airships were quite well by the Ministry of Defence. So, um, you know, what, what that pilot saw is hard to say, but uh, he took a shot at it anyway. <laughs> and um, another case uh, which was um, attributed to the, to the Red Baron, uh, uh, this is a self-hope story, but I mention it in my book. I did a follow-up book called UFOs of the First World War, and basically it has about the same information as my earlier sketchbook, book, but I've put together some new bits of information we found. And um, the, um, the Red Baron case is a story um, that was told several years later, and um, it's almost certainly a hoax. But it's, it's interesting because it, uh, it, it tells of a Red Baron shooting at a um, a, a, a classical flying saucer and then it's shot down and it fall, crashes to the ground and then two aliens get out of the spaceship and run into the forests in Germany and um, you know it's an interesting case just because it plays on this idea of you know the iconic image of a red baron being all invincible sort of thing shooting down a a sort of high-tech flying saucer, so it brings together, you know, our modern-day world and and the old world. You know, so it's like a steampunk event, and uh, yeah, it's an entertaining story. But the if if you start looking into it, um, lots of the facts unravel. Um, but um, yeah, it does turn up in a few UFO books as sort of real. <laughs> so. Um, I mentioned it in my book anyway, yeah. but uh, that's a frustrating thing about ufology. The best cases are usually the least valid, really, and perhaps, perhaps you know, some little light in the sky case has, has perhaps got better witnesses and evidence than something uh, which sounds a lot more at first value to be something, you know, for, from beyond our planet. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that, that's the real thing with my research, really, is that um, we've got the, the flying saucer period now, but in the past there were things like um, phantom airships uh, before the First World War in several countries, but we're all generated either by the, um, interesting inventors or just fear of war. You know, in Britain in particular, we feared the German Zeppelins. So obviously anything is seen in the sky became a sort of German Zeppelin. You know, even if it was a little light in the sky or something, it often got um, um, heightened into being a, you know, searchlights of a, of a, a Zeppelin searching out uh, targets for future bombing and, you know, helping develop invasion plans. So it was part of the uh, bigger... Um, um, aspect of people just being worried about a future war and there's also no body of literature about future war with Germany uh, which some uh, featured airships as well because it was such a potent weapon 
uh, and people imagined that if the Germans could bomb London, uh, Germany would invade Britain very quickly afterwards. So, you know, it was something people didn't know the impact of uh, Zeppelins on, on warfare, really. So it was something people were very frightened about. And you can compare it, really, with a flying saucer scare. People were frightened of uh, what the flying saucers were. You know, people originally thought there might have been uh, Soviet weapons that could decimate the United States and undermine democracy. And then it kind of transmuted into the threat of, you know, aliens from outer space. So, um, you know, uh, it, it's often things seen in the sky are seen in the context of the, the social conditions and, you know, uh, what, what our own expectations are. Hmm. At what point, Nigel, did people start to think of extraterrestrials as explanations for these lights in the sky rather than Germans or Soviets or whatever yeah um, well occasionally it cropped up um, I think uh, Charles Fort actually wrote to the New York Times suggesting that um, things seen in the sky were um, down to um, spaceships I think that was in the 1920s and even in 1909 um there are one or two letters by people suggesting that they could be from Mars because obviously The War of the Worlds was very popular at that time as a novel. So um, people were thinking about life on Mars. But it was kind of done as a kind of uh, a joke and aside. And even um, Charles Fort, um, you know, who obviously collected tons of material about odd events, he sort of played with the idea that odd things in the sky were from uh, outer space or some, you know, um, somewhere beyond our own scientific understanding. But he kind of did it from a sort of philosophical and humorous point of view. So you weren't always sure if he was really serious about it. But obviously, there was a Fortean society was existent during the Second World War, and so it was kind of already there to sort of pounce on flying saucers when they did become um, when it became a name 1947 so there's already a kind of background interest and of course there's all these stories of uh, food fighters seen by United States Air Force pilots during the Second World War over Germany and over the Far East so um, and also there were ghost rockets seen shortly after the, F the Second World War. So um, by that time there were already a lot of things going on in the sky that people thought were strange. So in a way, when Kenneth Arnold said he saw these um, saucer-like objects um, and the term flying saucer came, we had a sort of umbrella term then to explore, you know, virtually anything to do with things seen in the sky become a flying saucer. But I suppose that was a bad thing, really, because, you know, the majority of things aren't classic flying saucers. Even Kenneth Arnold saw sort of delta-shaped craft rather than, you know, the classic round spinning saucer you get in all the B-movies. But, um, 
despite it not being as descriptive as it should be, it, it's a great umbrella term, really. And also, you know, it's brought in things like men in black, psychic phenomena, and, um, you know, virtually any anything unknown can come into the, into the flying saucer umbrella, really. Um, and there again, that's a sort of interesting area for some people to study and some people think perhaps it's just a just another confusing factor to stop us you know looking at the actual you know nuts and bolts facts you know no now we have a question from uh, a very faithful listener of ours in south america and ben if you would uh, present uh, from peter in bogota colombia I sure can. Uh, so Peter writes to us, in your book titled The Scareship Mystery, a survey of phantom uh, airship scares from 1909 to 1918, what are some of the most interesting cases and uh, writing in the book that you were able to research German archives and what did you discover? So I guess to extrapolate on what you've already said. Um, yeah, we, we didn't actually look at any German archives. Um, I've... Um, Myself and Granville O'Droid, who did a lot of the basic research, he found in the uh, British archives lots of material from the War Office. And um, But we, we didn't do a parallel study of German files. I'm not even sure if there is such material available, because obviously with the two world wars, um, I think a lot of German archives got destroyed but it, it would be fantastic if somebody, a German-speaking person, could actually um, look into that. Um, most most of our data comes from uh, in, the English-speaking world as well. Um, it comes from, uh, you know, um, from uh, uh, Canada, U- USA, uh, New Zealand, Australia, um, even South Africa had a a scare in um, the beginning of the First World War where they thought, thought um, uh, German aviators were flying over Cape Town and was quite a, a worry that the Germans would uh, would be flying over South Africa but um, uh, looking into the information about their air force they only had a few um, aircraft that weren't really capable of much. So I think there again, the South African sightings were more due to uh, a kind of war panic than any any real aircraft about. Um, and the same happened in the United States and Canada. The, the sightings of uh, aircraft were often associated with um, you know, uh, worries about um, German spying activities. Uh, in fact, there was quite a good story there by a, a pilot who went to Canada and said um, he bragged that he'd had a dogfight with German pilots over the sort of American-Canadian border. <laughs> but that, that story, you know, uh, I think uh, he made up just to brag to people, but it got published in a, a, a local paper. So um, it shows people were... Um, interested in that sort of uh, idea of aerial combat really and uh, also that people you know fabricated stories as well as uh, people genuinely thinking there were you know aircraft um, over their uh, city or town 
that, that was of German origin. So, um, but, but other than that, we didn't really um, research much into Germany. I know um, the different, um, I think the Germans did have similar rumours. Um, there's things like uh, the British Angel of Mons, when the British Army retreated from the Germans at Mons, um, there were rumours that angels were visible to the British soldiers who helped guide them away from being destroyed by the Germans. And there are several accounts in uh, German literature of also German soldiers seeing their own patron saints or um, protective figures protecting them. And perhaps that's something else that stress of war brings out that people... Um, if, if uh, exhausted and tired and um, in a very stressful situation, um, when, they, when they do survive it, they sometimes attribute it to some salvation figure. Um, you know, and back then it was like an angel or um, St. Michael or somebody like that or angels. Whereas, you know, today people perhaps think like contactees used to that you know, beings from outer space are protecting them. So, you know, things change over time. I don't know whether um, it's because some people say it's alien influences attuned to the human mind, or it could be just that the human mind is attuned to things that uh, they like to think is beyond their ken. And, you know, um, you know, it just might be... A, a, you know, a psychological mechanism rather than something out there. So I think that's something we're constantly looking at as UFO investigators. You know, is it really out there or in our own minds? And often it can be a, <coughs> a fine <coughs> combination of, of both those factors, really, especially in more complex cases or in cases which involve um, several people. That's a really... Actually, interesting point, and one that I, I kind of wanted to circle back to. Well, when we when we first started our conversation, um, the the first question that came to my mind was, would there be more sightings during wartime? But you brought up the fascinating idea of war nerves, and especially oh. when it comes to you know sort of the the traumatic experience of war in every every sort of facet of it, whether you are a civilian or a soldier. That that brings up a fascinating sort of question, which is: is it is it that it's not real and it's all in our all in our minds? Our neural synapses are kind of just you know firing off because you know stress can affect everybody, whether it's you know the stress of failing an exam or the stress of being shot at. It's still the same thing that we're being affected by. In, yeah. in it's whether whether the gravity of the situation is completely different, it still affects us. Does that um, make this experience any less real? I suppose. Yeah, um, I, I think that's interesting because a lot of people say, say the United States has often said that military bases seem to be the focus of UFO activity, uh, which raises a question: Is it? because outside UFOs are coming there, or is it that people are more uh, aware of um, uh, things going on in the sky and, and are attuned to anything unusual? Um, it's interesting, like Roswell, um, it, was, it was near um, a, a nuclear 
um, strategic base and um, you know uh, Area 51 is another example really of uh, is, is it stuff they're actually testing there or is it outside forces coming there you know and um, I think in every conflict there have been um, scares involving uh, things in the sky um, like I said with Foo Fighters or German uh, Phantom Airships and um, I think a lot of them can be attributed to war nerves but you know like with flying saucers there are the odd case where you just can't explain them um, David Clark uh, in Britain has investigated um, Foo Fighter cases um, there's a particular one where a uh, Foo Fighter seems to chase a, a Lancaster bomber and it, it, it they make quite a lot of manoeuvres to try and free themselves of this uh, um, illuminated object and um, finally do lose it but um, it, it sounds more than something somebody's hallucinating but on the other hand the Germans didn't have such a such a weapon and also the British um, did study um, Foo Fighter reports and um, they couldn't really come up with a, a solid answer for all of them but on the other hand they thought well they don't do any damage, they don't shoot aircraft, they don't um, um, shoot them or damage them or cause them to crash so in a way uh, although they were puzzling they weren't dangerous so in a way um, they could sort of dismiss them on, on that side of the equation and it was quite easy just to call it war nerves but I think quite a few people even after the war have reported similar experiences and it obviously stayed with them so it does make you wonder what, what was going on then and, and whether you know what would trigger such things you know you'd think um, if you were exhausted in, in a war situation you know you might more likely see things like angels and things like that like they did in the first world war perhaps you know what we hang on for salvation changes over time you know perhaps as we get more secular we we grasp for more technological gods you know you know it's a, one of those things where you kind of um you can look at it different ways really but um um, yeah, so we've got Rendlesham Forest incident where again it's another um, a base where UFO activity seems to occur so there do seem to be hot spots spot for, for uh, UFO activity yes. and I don't know if you've heard the Walmins, that was another prominent place in Britain uh, particularly in the 60s and that's near a lot of army training bases and things so you know that does uh, flag up the fact that uh, you know if you go anywhere military inspired there's, there's likely to be a history of UFO activity around it so you know um, so mm -hmm. I think it depends on how you look at, look at the subject to mm -hmm. determine what, what you believe about that you know. All right. Well, we'll take our mid-show break now. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful but really hot Blackstone Valley today with our guest, Nigel Watson. We'll be right back, so stick with us.
the night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to the Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade, the finest in late night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofnye.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Want to take a ride? Local and live at 99.5 FM. And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal here on ON 1240 AM and FM. And we're here with, of course, Ben, uh, our uh, producer and co-host, and also our great guest uh, coming all the way from the U.K. today, uh, Nigel Watson. Uh, he didn't come all the way to be in the studio, unfortunately, but we have him uh, via Skype, and uh, we're very happy to, to have him with us. So, Nigel, um, actually, well, let's, let's go right to a question from a listener here. We have a uh, very faithful listener, Phil, in Orange, Massachusetts. And he has a question for Nigel. Phil writes to us, uh, Greetings, gentlemen. Uh, I have a question concerning the legendary and possibly uh, apocryphal airship crash in Aurora, Texas in 1897. Uh, it's taken for granted that an airship crashed into a windmill uh, and that it's thought the occupants were buried in a local cemetery. However, in 1988, uh, the issue of uh, Fate magazine, a researcher writes that there isn't any record of a windmill on the farm in question. Even more damning is the fact that detailed histories of Aurora were published within the next five to ten years, and neither of them ever mention an airship crash. Any thoughts? Um, yeah, this is a, a fantastic case from the uh, famous 1896-97 airship scare, and involves one of the better better incidents where it was alleged it, it crashed into this windmill, and that. Uh, some Martian pilot had been found inside it. I think they'd also seen hieroglyphics or something inside the craft. And so uh, that was what made them think it was a Martian. Um, but like you say, um, there, there wasn't a windmill at the site. And um, also, they said they buried the, the body and the... Um, I think they buried the body in the local cemetery and put all the wreckage down the local well... Um, but um, and, and then much later, yeah, this story sounded really amazing to people who dug for newspaper reports up in the 1960s. But then, um, when people did a bit more digging into the real story, it seems like it was a sort of uh, just a hoax made up to entertain people in the local paper. And um, also, it makes you wonder. If if a, a genuine Martian spaceship did crash, you know why would you bury the evidence? Really, you'd you'd be happy to put it on display or sell it, uh, or you know just make it worldwide knowledge. You know why why bury it all? But um, even though it has been exposed as a, a, a hoax, um, people still go to Aurora and try to dig up the astronauts' remains and. I think there's an actual plaque at the cemetery. And um, I think that underlines also that there were a lot of cases during that scare in America that, that were hoaxes. There was another one of, um, of a calf being lassoed and um, kidnapped by a, an airship. And then a few days later, the remains of a mutilated calf is found on the ground. That, again, was a hoax. But... The interesting thing about that story is it sort of um, has the old thing about strange 
a strange object in the sky, a kidnapping and cattle mutilation, which all become themes in the, the 1970s. And also with the airship crash, it, it's very like a, a prototype Roswell, really. Yes, know? definitely. Well, I'm thinking there's also a, <clears throat> one thing that, that, that spread the story, I think, was a 1986 film called The Aurora Incident, uh, oh, yeah. In which that that was uh, was told that story, and uh, I, it sticks in my mind because uh, the governor of Texas was played by uh, of all people Spanky McFarland, who was a child star in the Our Gang comedies of the 1930s and 40s, and he looked exactly the same, only big and old. So <clears throat> anyway, that's what made it stick in my mind. But it was a a charming story if you have a chance to see it. But whether it's true is, is another issue. But, yeah, that's the other thing, it's like the Red Baron incident, they, they, they kind of got a cinematic quality to them, and uh, you know, it'd be brilliant if they didn't make, make a film about the Red Baron incident, but uh, with the um, Aurora Texas case, it, it's kept on, and I think um, some stories um, have said that the, the township enjoys... Uh, enjoys having that because it becomes a tourist attraction and um, you know the same with Roswell really and uh, um, you know that certain areas have exploited their UFO legacy um, for the benefit of tourism oh yes um, which but strangely enough in, in Warminster if you ever go there it's a sleepy little town in, in Wiltshire mm -hmm. um, you, you, you'd hardly see any sign of UFOs unless you go up Cradle Hill you might see a little bit of alien graffiti but <laughs> uh, in Britain we've kind of repressed it all and hid it all away um, and uh, you know it seems uh, quite fascinating compared to say Roswell and or even Area 51, uh, I think the more we don't want people to go to Area 51, the more people go there. So. Yeah, I, I've been to that vicinity and had a rather uh, disconcerting experience being chased by government agents, but apparently, I just, anyway, some years ago. Anyhow, uh, <clears throat> Nigel, uh, I know that uh, certainly in your, in your book, um, The uh, Origins of UFOs, you refer to a case as far back as 1807, and that's before there were airships, as far as we know. There were only rudimentary balloons, that sort of thing. What was yeah. that about, that case? Um, well, to be honest, I can't, can't remember that far back myself. Okay. But <laughs> well, you, you, don't, you don't look old enough to remember the 1907, never mind. Yeah, the thing is, so we, um, we were a lot... Uh, it, it's funny, because if you look back into old newspaper files... Um, virtually any year you might find um, a sighting of something unusual in the sky um, because we tend to think of it as a modern phenomenon but um, if you go right back to 1807 or something people were seeing odd lights in the sky and things um, and, and if you go even further back for uh, um, uh, lithographs of people showing um, you know, balls of light and uh, cannon like cannonball-like things falling from the sky. Um, some of um, the artistic representations might be of uh, thunder and lightning or um, meteors and comets, but people did think of uh, things in the sky as being wondrous and often that they um, presage great events and um, so we were kind of used in a sort of astrological sense 
Uh, it's a bit like like today, I suppose, with people seeing UFOs and evidence of alien encounters. I tend to think, you know, something life-changing is going to happen, but there will be government disclosure of the apocalypse or, you know, something revolutionary. So even going back in time, people were always aware of um, the implications of, of weird things going on in the sky. Um, but, but um, you know, things like, um, you know, mainly there were lights in the sky and uh, some of them can be just astronomical or something, but, uh, you know, some are quite quite unusual. Uh, sometimes astronomers also saw um, strange things passing in front of the lenses as well and it made people speculate that we were orbiting um, planets or something something extraterrestrial not far beyond Earth and the Moon really. Um, but uh, you know, people like Jack Valley have looked at uh, a lot of these ancient cases and we've, we've tried um, pinning down you know, explanations for them, but you know, some are genuinely quite, quite interested in the light of a modern-day UFOs. Well, there is, uh, I'm thinking too, uh, if we can push this all farther back, uh, further back, there would be, uh, for example, when we were researching, uh, working in Rendlesham Forest in 2012, the last time we were there, uh, we un- encountered... You know, our theory is that it was a flap area, as we, as we call it, many, many different kinds of paranormal activity that aren't traditionally associated with one another do take place in that vicinity. And within the 20 to 30 miles of Rendlesham Forest, you've had the, uh, I believe it's pronounced Aldeburg Sky Battle, uh, which occurred during the 1600s and was uh, well attested by a number of people, and apparently there were uh, craft in the sky. And again, this is the 17th century. Uh, mm. Apparently... You know, zooming around, doing battle, and other sightings were seen closer to the ground. Uh, and then you can go back, I suppose, as far back as the, the cave paintings at uh, mm-hmm. Uluru in Australia. And I've been yeah. to Australia, I haven't been to Uluru, but I've seen, but the, uh, the amazing, uh, cave paintings of what appear to be people with helmets, uh, discs with people on, you know, Bigfoot, if you wish, or Yeti. Um, so can we say that uh, perhaps uh, UFO, investiga- UFO sightings, if not investigations, can go back yeah. to uh, perhaps 30,000 years? Yeah, um, yeah, it's great uh, looking back at some um, cave cave paintings and things like that that show uh, quite unusual things because some of the other things like animals and people look you know, fairly realistic in terms of how we represented things. So it makes you wonder what, you know, the more bizarre things with helmeted um, um, creatures and things are. Um, I think it's difficult, though, because if you go so far back in time, how to interpret things. You know, I'm quite interested in stone circles and things like um, uh, Stonehenge and uh, prehistoric locations because they do give off a certain mystical aura, you know, and um, people have seen UFOs near um, prehistoric sites and, and, of course, Wiltshire and Warminster are very much in the heart of Stonehenge territory and other prehistoric uh, remains. So um, it does make you feel that there is a link back into in history to things like that. Um, but 
I suppose on the other hand, um, it's very difficult to track down, you know, what the real meanings were. I think um, if you look at a lot of um, ancient texts and things, sometimes they're quite ambiguous, and you know, perhaps it might be the equivalent of modern-day comic books. You know, perhaps <laughs> the thousands time people think Superman was a real being and went round flying round saving people from criminal activity. So <laughs> you never know. But I think that's a, the power of human, of human imagination is also worth considering, really, as well. So, um, um, but, you know, I just find, find it fascinating all the different areas you can look at, really. And it does make you think twice about um, prehistoric remains and why they were built and the, their purpose. And, um, you know, I don't think anyone's really pinned down... The, you know, the, the true meaning, and I suppose all we can do is, is speculate. Um, but uh, I think that's, a, I get the same feeling with UFOs, really, that you can pin down so many facts, and then it's up to per people's either faith or interpretation. Um, you know, obviously somebody who's had intense abduction experiences is going to look at the subject um, differently from... You know, an investigator like myself who's never been abducted as far as I know. So, you know, <laughs> uh, I yeah. think that's the uh, situation really, isn't it? And uh, Yeah, so, excellent point. Uh, I think that the interpretation is everything. And, of course, we're sitting here at our uh, pinnacle of uh, glory here, this our civilization, and, you know, looking back upon... Uh, the literature and the customs and, and beliefs of people who uh, we may be interpreting them entirely incorrectly. Yeah, and, yeah, that's kind of uh, like the whole trickiness of history in general. Is we yeah. tend to look at things from our our point of view, <laughs> and it it kind of kind of clouds it a little bit. And this kind of does actually get to my my next question. Well, it's more of an observation than a question, but I guess you could interpret it as a question. That there's sort of these these two particular themes we've touched on uh, throughout our time together today, and uh, one of them one of the major ones is is perspective, but it kind of branches into two different areas. One is how it's dictated, sort of whether it's it's technology. At, at the time, you know, we look at we look at these reports of phantom airships, and you know, we look at the technology of the time, and sort of it's the best way we can kind of interpret things is through the technology that exists then. But there's also another facet to perspective, which is sort of the zeitgeist or the the yeah. sort of spirit of the times. You know, whether it's wartime, sort of dictating a lot of these experiences, and then you know, post Roswell where we're starting to kind of see more sci-fi type things into today where arguably yeah. you could say that there's more of a, a sort of new new agey uh, view on on UFOs in, in a sense, where they're less sort of nuts and boltsy things and more ethereal almost, if, yeah. if, if that makes makes more sense. So as, as time goes on, you know, this is sort of a tricky question in, in any sort of area of, of study, which is... What is sort of the next the next steps for ufology? How how do we sort of interpret the history of our past in in sort of the patterns as they unfold in the future? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. There seems to be a, a um, fact and fiction um, back in um, the pre First World War period. Not only were there lots of stories about um, 
developments in aviation, you know, it was a very new science and people nearly every day were breaking new uh, boundaries and um, achieving new things. And, uh, you know, also there was the imagination. People were wondering, you know, what what would aviation to do to our lives? Would we all be flying around in uh, aerial taxis, <laughs> and, you know, cities in the sky and things like that? And also, would would it mean uh, modern warfare would be totally different? You know, in Britain in particular, we have a Royal Navy that have ruled the world for so long, and then um, this barrier against foreign invasion was suddenly gone because the Germans could just fly over the Royal Navy. So, you know, that was a, a massive threat for Britain. And But it was also... You know, worries about that, um, the new technology stories coming out in the newspapers. And um, also there were, you know, um, a few fictional films as well coming out about the dangers of war. Um, there's um, a story that shows little uh, guided missiles sent to knock down a German airship. So there's all this thing about... Um, new technology also brings in new ideas and new fiction and, and what's going to happen next. I suppose with with ufology, things are moving quite move quite fast now with social media and the fact that um, you know there seems to be more stories about disclosure and the um, you know different revelations from the American, you know, perhaps um, American studies in it. But there always seems to be a promise of something ahead, and it, it's always um, a bit disappointing, really, because since the 1950s onwards, there's always been people saying that, you know, we're going to get full disclosure, the government's going to reveal the alien presence. Uh, and you get a few really good cases. I suppose in America in 1952, there was lots of sightings over Washington. Oh, and, yeah. Um, Big year for um, UFOs here. Yeah, and it brought up a lot of um, worries about what, what the situation would bring about. And um, and now we're getting um, these um, videos from the United States Navy jets and different... Um, like rumours of uh, different programmes to study uh, UFO technology but um, it, it, I find that quite frustrating really because it's a bit like Roswell really but people keep saying there are alien bodies and bits of evidence um, you know wreckage and things like that and for all stored in Area 51 and, and things but Nobody can really get their hands on it, and, uh, and it's same with most um, wreckage uh, as ascribed to UFO um, crashes. Uh, always seems to disappear, or if it does turn up, it's a bit like alien implants, but they don't seem to uh, come to any consequence. Uh, it's a matter of interpretation how exotic this piece of wreckage might be. I've always thought. The, the Roswell wreckage always sounded a bit, um, intan you know, it sounded very flimsy. And there again, it had uh, hieroglyphics like the Aurora, Texas case. And it's almost like you've got to have a bit of squiggly hieroglyphic writings on bits of wreckage to prove they're alien. 
Um, but um, it, it never sounded like uh, a, a full-blown spaceship like we'd imagine from a, a science B movie. And um, so I, I think um, I've, quite a few people have commented on the fact that ufology tends to be nostalgia. We're still looking at Roswell and Rendlesham, and nothing much has really happened uh, except you know, for these United States uh, Navy jet footage. Nothing nothing much has really occurred in the last uh, few decades. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it makes you wonder where, where ufology will go. Um, you know, and a lot of the um, ufologists of, um, that were quite prominent are beginning to die off as well. And I don't know whether much new coming in I think you mentioned you know there's a more of a new age side of things people are looking at it more um, in terms of uh, almost like hyper reality that aliens can manipulate reality so we are if if we do see UFOs or aliens they act in a magical way from our point of view but they, they are using a, a science but a science far beyond our understanding so it's still a kind of extraterrestrial theory but um, making the alien activity far more beyond our own understanding whereas I think in the past something like the 1950s the alien invaders were just like a, a, a slightly moderner version of just human invaders that come plunder, take people away, and, mm -hmm. you know, that's the end of us sort of thing. No, it's you know, very true, and I think that uh, we're, all, we're running out of time, but uh, you, you st sort of made the tradition into what could be another show uh, about uh, making the step from nuts and bolts craft from other planets to perhaps uh, what is now referred to as ultra-terrestrials, or that's, ex you know, whatever, uh, maybe even time travelers or other versions of ourselves or multiversal visitors, that sort of thing. But I'm afraid we'll have to leave that to the next show. Uh, Nigel, tell us about your books and where people can find out more about you. Um. Well, my latest book is Captured by Aliens, a history and analysis of American abduction claims, where I look at the sort of, uh, how, how um, the subject came about um, through the Betty and Hat Barney Hill case uh. and the abduction cases since then. Um, that's through McFarland and through, uh, publishers and through Amazon and most other bookshops. Um, and uh, I've also done the UFOs of the First World War, which is the History Press, and there again, that's available on Amazon. And both books are available on Kindle as well, which is quite a handy option. Okay. And um, I suppose both of them are sort of ways of um, putting a complex subject um, onto paper, really, and to show the different avenues of study, because I think it's, um, if, if you're looking at the history or, or a, a modern day ufology, we're quite complicated and I've got quite a lot of different tributaries to different areas to study, so I think um, to, to get it on paper, I bet me write it basically. Okay, very good. Well, Nigel, uh, that's about all the time we have. You are the middle and two ends of a fine fellow, and uh, we're absolutely delighted to have you with us, and we'll have you back to uh, take it farther, if we can. So thank you. Thank you. Okay. <laughs>
So Ben, we'll get into our uh, announcements here. I, if we actually, you're still fiddling with material, so I'll, I'll do it. Um, Thank you. As we've been, as we've been announcing on recent shows, the 2020 Exeter UFO Festival on Labor Day weekend has been canceled. But the 55th anniversary of the incident at Exeter will not go unsung on this show. On September 6th, the day we would would have broadcast from the historic Exeter Town Hall with a panel of speakers and a live audience uh, for the fifth year in a row, we will offer a rebroadcast of last year's panel show from there. On that panel were Kathleen Marden, Peter Robbins, Mac Maloney, Mike Stevens, and many other luminaries in the UFO field, including uh, Jim Weiner and Charlie Foltz, uh, two uh, witnesses uh, who actually were involved in the Allagash uh, UFO abductions in the 1970s. Very, very interesting stuff. So the following week, uh, September 13th, we'll bring you a very special guest, retired FBI agent Clinton Rand, who as a Hampton, New Hampshire police sergeant in September 1965 was on duty at the police department desk during the incident at Exeter, which involved UFO encounters by several of his officers. Uh, on the day after that, uh, what would have been the Exeter UFO Festival, September 7th, Labor Day in the U.S., Ben and I will be on the Travel Channel as part of the debut of The Devil's Road, The True Story of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Why are we, why is stuff, we're always on TV and this title has devil in it. <laughs> Devil's Hour, I mean, what is this? I mean, uh, what, what grabs your, t- your, your attention more than... Yeah, whatever grabs your goat and swings it around by the tail. Anyway. I suppose, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, that, uh, is the first in a new series of two-hour documentaries on the Travel Channel, America's True Horror Stories. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm in it as someone who worked with the Warrens, and Ben is there to represent the new generation of researchers, and that will be the Travel Channel, 9 p.m. Eastern, Monday, September 7th, 2020. And so we have high hopes that we can uh, be back at the Greater New England UFO Conference in Leominster, Massachusetts. That's on Columbus Day weekend. Uh, my dad is scheduled to be the keynote speaker to mark his 50-year work anniversary in paranormal research. There are plans for an online conference if it cannot be held at the usual physical venue, and you can look for Shane there as well. Yeah, Shane Searway, our uh, guest co-host, a uh, big uh, fellow on the show here. Uh, we have no final word yet, but rumor has it that another UFO event that takes place in October, namely the Western Connecticut UFO Conference, will indeed do so this year in the vicinity of Danbury, Connecticut, uh, one form or another. <laughs> Uh, it's determined to take place, and we think that's great. So stay tuned, uh, literally, on that one. And you can check out our books, along with uh, that of our other uh, co-hosts on our show website. That's BehindTheParanormal.com, uh, where you can also find out more about the show, uh, our many cases over the years, our public appearances, and how to book us, along with uh, some of our uh, 850 Free recorded shows with it from our 12 plus years on the air, and that includes our four and a half year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. Uh, past shows uh, back to 2009 are also available on our major podcast platforms. That includes uh, YouTube, iTunes, uh, Apple Podcasts, the Paranormal Radio app, and more. Uh, so, and if you do happen to listen to us on Apple, uh, please give us a uh, rating and uh, uh, leave a review. It helps us uh, feel good about ourselves, but also helps us grow our show. And what's going on next week, Ben? So, next week we have, uh, that's uh, the first uh, Sunday in August, August 2nd, uh, renowned researcher Nadine Lelich, uh will return to the show 
for the first time in 11 years to talk about ETs and the alien presence. Okay, that's about all we have time for. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with 